You're watching A Court Leader's Advantage, a video podcast for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Local courts are the least analyzed components of the American court system. This is particularly ironic since there are thousands of local courts, far more than there are courts of general jurisdiction. It has been estimated that they process over three and a half million criminal cases and collect at least $2 billion in fines and fees annually. We often talk about our desire to preserve the public's trust and confidence in America's courts. When we look at the public that has firsthand experience with a court, we often miss the fact that the average person is more likely to have acquired that experience by dealing with a local court. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month, we're looking at three recent Harvard Law Review articles about local courts. Criminal Municipal Courts by Professor Alexandra Natapoff. Kangaroo Courts by Sean Osei Owoso. And Abolished Municipal Courts by Brendan Rodiger. All three of these articles are available in the additional resources section on the podcast webpage. Here to discuss their perspectives on these articles are folks who can honestly reveal the whole story on local courts. They are judges and court administrators, all of whom work in municipal courts from around the country. We're going to be looking at questions including, can and should we be collecting more data on local courts nationally? Can the problem-solving model fostered by many local courts scale up across the country? Can local courts resist the pressure many cities impose to increase revenue? And what takeaways do these judges and court administrators have for the rest of us? Now, before we delve into our conversation, we have a terminology issue which must be clarified. These articles often use the label municipal courts, but their discussion encompasses a much wider range of courts. However, the term limited jurisdiction court doesn't really work in this instance, since it can also cover some juvenile courts, probate courts, and even some family courts. We're going to be referencing not only municipal courts, but also county courts, justice courts, mayor's courts, magistrate courts, and alderman's courts. I'm going to refer to them all under the umbrella term local courts. So let's join our panel. We're joined today by the Honorable Ed Spillane, presiding judge of the Municipal Court in College Station, Texas. The Honorable Mary Logan, judge of the Municipal Court in Spokane, Washington. Rashida Davis, court administrator for the Municipal Court in Atlanta, Georgia. Courtney Whiteside, court administrator of the Municipal Court in St. Louis, Missouri. And Betty King, court administrator for the Municipal Court in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. We currently collect enough court performance data from general jurisdiction courts nationally for researchers to say that they have a fairly representative sample, meaning filings, terminations, and case age of disposition. The same cannot be said of local courts. Peter Drucker once said that you cannot manage what you cannot count. How problematic is this lack of national statistical data, and what can be done about it? What should be done about it? Courtney? 
I would say uh, regarding the quantifying of data, first we have to find a way to uniformly classify and quantify the existence of these local courts across the nation before we can start to find some measurable data sets. Uh, if we can't uh, evaluate a set of data that we can't define. So I think that's one of the, the largest challenges. Uh, any solution that we're gonna find to address this is gonna have to be voluntary. We can't force people to turn over the statistical information while most seem to do it voluntarily. Uh, it's always, the information and data is always gonna have an asterisk behind it because it's not all encompassing and we have yet to be able to define exactly what our data set is. Uh, but I do think there is a way to have enough viable information to be able to have a fair representation of uh, measurable metrics for municipal courts around the state. Again, once what a municipal court is, is, is defined uniformly. Rashida? Um, I agree with Courtney uh, regarding uh, collecting statistical data. I do think that there are some states that already collect information from local courts. Uh, Georgia is one of those states. We are all under the umbrella of the Administrative Office of Courts. They collect data from every municipal court up to superior courts. Um, there are challenges with uh, classifying certain cases. And so it is a bit generic when it comes to defining some misdemeanor offenses. But I do think that would be a great starting point for people to cold information from these local courts. They should really just kind of start with um, the organizations that already have some of that information available and, and then go from there. Many local courts are at the forefront of administering restorative justice through a variety of problem-solving courts. The Municipal Court in Eugene is one example, and I have personally watched the Veterans Court in the Municipal Court in Mesa, Arizona. Can the problem-solving court model be scaled up nationally? Judge Logan? I um, absolutely believe that is a possibility um, and a probability. The city of Spokane's municipal court uh, actually came to life um, with that sort of energy of a desire to have these sorts of therapeutic problem-solving courts that was not being made available when the city of Spokane was contracting for judicial services with the local county district court. Um, and what we have proven since 2009 is that courts of lim limited jurisdiction are more responsible, or sorry, more responsive and more responsible in the sense of who they serve, which is the city, the urban core. Um, and because of our nimbleness and our flexibility, um, while still following the constitution and following the law, it has allowed for an expansion of, of many courts. Uh, we have a veterans court that I started. We have a community court that I started. My benchmate started a DUI court and we are co-participants in a mental health court. There is absolutely no reason if the entities, the jurisdictions are open to it, that these courts cannot stand up um, based upon limited jurisdictions authority to do so. Judge Spillane? Yeah, yes, they can. Uh, the whole goal, at least from my perspective of court, is to make sure people don't end up in the future in a, in a criminal court. And so we've done a good job if we can prevent that. And I've found through my experience that restorative justice often works better than the traditional punishments of jail 
or, or fines. So the question is, can, can we do it nationally? And, and municipal courts actually um, have been powerful engines to, to do these type of programs. They truly are doing alternative punishments. And, and as an example of one that is happening nationally is the teen court model. Uh, the teen court uh, model, which appears in different courts, uh, it appears on very, you know, from, from Native American reservations to, you know, large city courts, uh, it's, it's a model in which teens actually judge themselves. Uh, you know, they, they, within a limited range, decide what the punishment in terms of community service, uh, teens uh, learn to be responsible because they make decisions on other teens. And I actually have found that to be the most powerful uh, program I've seen in all the criminal justice from felonies through the lowest misdemeanor. So uh, they do work. And the power of municipal courts is that we see everyone. We usually see people when they first appear in court and we can um, do these programs fairly quickly without future harm if they're gonna be good citizens. Betty? Oh, I'd love to take this opportunity to share what we do here in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, our local courts of limited jurisdiction and municipal courts as they're termed here, we were one of the first courts in the state of Alabama to have a federally funded drug court. We have an adult drug court that has been consistently funded through federal courts to the tune of two million, I'm sorry, five million two hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars since 2008 annually. So it is a landmark in institution here, and we've done partnerships with neighboring municipalities who have, were not as quite as robust as us, and it is able to be brought to scale. Municipal courts also with us or courts of limited jurisdiction in local courts. We also have a domestic violence court. We have a mental health court. We have a bilingual court. And we have a veterans treatment court that was the first in Alabama starting in 2010. One of our flagship courts that I'd like to share with you a brief um, bit about is our homeless court. We've been doing a partnership with Homeless Court for over 10 years. And with our Homeless Court, we are providing services to individuals and we do it off-site so that it is a more comfortable environment. So problem-solving courts in this state are how we address concerns at the local level. So when others call us those other types of terms of court, then we have to say, this is what we do here at the local level, address issues one-on-one, -on -one, with individuals who have concerns. The 2015 U.S. Department of Justice investigation into Ferguson, Missouri, revealed that the revenue from local courts substantially contributes to the income of many municipalities. Now this provides a powerful incentive for cities to pressure local courts to increase financial judgments levied on defendants. How widespread do you think this pressure is? How serious is this situation? And what can be done to curb it? Courtney? The Ferguson effect, again, um, that's been pretty wide, wide reaching since 2015. And, and you're correct, it is a very powerful incentive and, and potentially very damaging to the overall integrity of any court of law. Uh, municipal courts are uh, very often established by the local government structure 
for the political subdivision in which they they reside. And the personnel that serve in the courts are employed by that same government entity. So it gets very complicated on, on many fronts. For many individuals that appear in the court, uh, it, it's very confusing. Uh, the, the court is created by the government structure. Uh, and sometimes the interaction with the court can set the tone for how that person feels about you know, government at, as a whole. So it, it can be very positive. It can also be very damning. Um, if somebody comes into the court and it, there is an appearance of, or in fact, there is a commingling of the branches of government that could send the wrong message uh, to, to the public. Um, and it could also be argued that their entire view of government could be damaged and that, that trust lost there. So the optics are, are just as important when you're talking about uh, different powerful in, in incentives and what goes on in, in a local court. So what I think is the most important is uh, nationally, I would say there are far, far more municipal courts that do a wealth of good rather than ones that are participating in any nefarious practices. But when you're talking about a person's overall view of the court, of government, it's important that they understand and that there is a clear separation of branches of government. One creates the laws, one enforces the laws, and one and interprets and administers the justice and makes sure that, that we're interpreting those things in a way that we're protecting the rights of the accused and sticking to those constitutional principles is imperative if we're going to overcome some of those challenges that were pointed out in, uh, in the Ferguson report in 2015. Judge Belaine? I agree with Courtney that, you know, appearance is just as important or it can be more important on ethical matters like this than even substance. So, you know, courts are going to be collecting money because there's court costs, uh, you know, we have where we have not been creative, fines are often the form of punishment. Most citizens would rather pay a fine for a speeding ticket than go to jail, obviously. Uh, so what do you do? In Texas, they've had a rule for a while that if a city collects a certain, per if, if the money collected is a certain percentage of their overall revenue of the city, like 20%, I don't know the exact number, any money from the court has to go to the state. You take away that appearance that the police and others have a significant fiscal factor, what they do has a factor on the city. The money will have to go somewhere, so you can't completely eliminate that. And certainly, and I've seen in some states where courts depend on the money that they collect, that obviously needs to stop because there's just an obvious, not only appearance, but substantive problem with that. Rashida? I believe that while some smaller localities might more heavily rely on fines and fees, I believe that to be more the exception than the rule. I think that our court system is made up of a group of professionals who take their job seriously and their oath of office seriously. I think we do a disservice by indicating that our judges don't follow their judicial canon seriously. And one of those canons, at least in Georgia, is not to consider the, the generation of revenue or income. That's one of the things they, they can't consider or even really kind of speak to. So I have more faith in our judicial system. And I think that it's going to be hard to get away because they're obviously in the community and 
it seems like they may have some sort of biases when they have bias and fees, but for the most part, I think that our judges try to be creative and find alternative sentencing to resolve cases. And I think uh, when fines are almost like the last resort, at least here, and a lot of times defendants want fines because they don't want to do the community service. They don't want to do the alcohol and drug treatment or rehabilitation. So for me, I have more faith in our judicial system. I think that's a great point. And I, I think that the courts tend to struggle with that relationship between the court and the city. And how do we address that in your budgets, creating your budget from year to year? You know, it's, it's always a very uncomfortable question when the city or the county comes to you and says, what are your projected revenues? Well, I don't know. <laughs> We're not focused on revenues. I hope everyone's compliant and our revenues are really low. But that is not what the, you know, the political subdivision wants to hear. So they, they struggle with that. But yet we have to provide some answer for their budgetary purposes to know how they can manage the, the money and be good stewards of the people's money in our communities. So I, I think it, it is really difficult for the court to maneuver. But again, I think that you know, those that are nefarious in practice, they're they are kind of coming out on their own because the ones that are looking to be creative and looking to use restorative methods of justice and uh, kind of putting the, the onus back on the defendant, I think the teen court model can be applied to any defendant, you know, and what do you think is fair in this situation? And I think having a conversation with people goes a really long way. And I think that has been a positive that has come out of some of the unfortunate practices that were brought about nationally, not just in here in St. Louis County and in, in Ferguson specifically, but it's given us all an opportunity to uh, reassess some things that we may do now that we could do better or do differently. So uh, I tend to kind of focus on, okay, this is, we're done, like we're go going forward. And I think uh, Missouri has put in place the same 20% cap on fines and costs and bond forfeitures when dealing with minor traffic violations and anything in excess of that has to be turned over to the state. And in some cases, some cases in some localities, it's astonishing the amount of fines and costs that have have been lessened. So I think some some good has has come out of it, and I'm I'm hoping that some of these reforms and the ones that were doing things correctly and being creative and looking at other ways of doing things will continue to do so and be able to share some of those ideals with some of the courts that have room for improvement. So you know, I, I try to find some positives that came out of. Uh, 2015. Sentencings are often where the pressure to increase revenue is most obvious. Imposing sentences that increase not only fines, but surcharges for activities such as establishing a time payment schedule, visiting with one's probation officer, taking a drug test, or attending traffic school can result in defendants owing some serious money. Can these fees be regulated? Should these fees be regulated? Courtney? In thinking about how to answer this question, there I, two cases come to mind, Williams versus Illinois and Bearden versus Georgia, which were both cases heard in the Supreme Court about 10 years apart. And it's very interesting to me that in you know 2015 and forward, these have become very relevant cases again to be looked at. And, and neither case set specific caps on anything, but it does set the precedent for inquiring on one's ability to pay. 
And if they don't pay, is it because they were unable to pay or is there just a willful refusal to do so? And it, and it really makes you look at things a little bit different. I will say that I think that's about as the far as, of the, as the regulation should go. Uh, we have range of punishments, but we also have judicial discretion. And once we start encroaching on that, I think that's where we run into a problem. So again, I find that these two cases are very relevant to this question and to municipal court life as it is today. But we have to be very careful that we, we're not swinging the pendulum too far uh, to where we're, we're trampling on the, the autonomy of, of the court itself. Judge Logan? Easy answers. Yes, they can be regulated. And should they be? Yes. What our court has been mindful of well before one of our Supreme Court decisions known as Blazina came through was that the individuals that are coming into this court are the people, frankly, I, I always refer to them that do the most living and dying in our town and probably are having the most difficulty financially. And so in recognition of that, we always take into consideration their ability to pay, including whether or not or how much, uh, for example, if, if a bond were to be imposed for them to be hold, held in jail. So we had been doing that for a number of years with full conversation with our city council. So they understood that this is not a money-making proposition. They talked to us about how, you know, parking citations are not generating revenue. That's not something that, and we explained to them why it is that it is inappropriate that that would be something that the court should be taking into consideration. Example of that really took place with the disability placards. Those are huge fines in our state, $450 if you park in a disabled uh, spot and you don't have the state um, authorized placard. But the statute absolutely provides for full dismissal if somebody just mistakenly didn't hang that placard when they got the citation. And so we follow the law that's put into effect not to, not to generate money or to think about whether or not we're supposed to be generating money, but to follow the law. And I think that's an enormous distinction that needs to be spoken about, particularly in the light of the articles that we're talking about, how the only thing that these courts really do is generate funds for local entities. But even at the criminal violation where there are fines that are involved, we always take into account what we can reduce them to and set them on time pay. And that is a part of the colloquy I have with every single individual. Our state Supreme Court has also taken that into account and have mandated that all court levels must be mindful of legal financial obligations and they must, on the record, have conversations with the individuals that are before them that they are sentencing to make sure that while if even if it is a component of a penalty, that it is still something that's not going to drive somebody to bankruptcy or to otherwise bring them back to court for failure to, failure to pay. Judge Logan, can I ask you one, one question about this? Now, there are many states where the state legislature has assigned surcharges for various activities and have put into the legislation that such and such a fee cannot be waived. Does the state of Washington have such fees like that that cannot be waived? There are, particularly with DUIs, and again, this is at the, for the courts of limited jurisdiction, which includes district courts as well as municipal courts, there are mandatory minimum penalties that the legislation has with reference to DUIs. There are some tags that also tags, and I mean that as a, a financial tag 
on some of the domestic violence cases. But even with that, our state Supreme Court has said, you courts may still take into consideration what the person before you has the ability to pay. So they could make a contribution towards that without being, um, without violating the legislation in front of them. And this most recent experience in the legislature, uh, this just this last go round, in and of itself, the legislature has passed new rules allowing for courts to waive entirely those fees that had otherwise been, you know, quote unquote, mandated by previous legislation if there is truly an inability to pay by the individual in front of us. So really bringing home the point that our municipal court has since the day we opened in 2009, which is individualized justice, even when it comes to paying penalties. They also allow for community service as an alternative, for example, on infractions. So that if somebody has picked up an infraction and they don't have the fiscal ability to pay, they still can recompense by performing community service and providing proof of that to the court. What is one takeaway that you want folks tuning into this episode to come away with? Courtney? So many things. I think that, namely, that municipal courts tend to be painted with a very broad brush. And I think that the professor's article, while it does pigeonhole to some degree, I think it does do a good job of addressing the true challenges that municipal courts by definition would face. That being said, I think that there are some amazing municipal courts across our nation that are doing incredible work within their communities. And I think we need to investigate that further. And and I hope this podcast and others going forward will uh, continue to light that spark and continue the conversations and you know, the, the best thing about identifying a problem is now you have an opportunity for growth and improvement. So I'm hoping that the, the conversations keep going. Rashida? The takeaway I want to have is for people to go and visit your local <laughs> municipal court. Uh, pre-pandemic, we used to have tours every week where we would have middle school students and high school students come see the court, come see firsthand the good work that we are doing. I think there is more good here than there is bad and have a little bit of of faith in us. Judge Belaine? On the one hand, with uh, Professor Natapov's article, I am glad that she acknowledged and looked at municipal courts. However, a lot of times the conclusion is, well, you know, other judges in other courts or other lawyers don't know about this. Oh my gosh, and most of the public, you know, that's what court is. Well, I mean, is that our fault or is that just the fault of the bar where a lot of lawyers in our courts aren't making money so they don't go in the court. So it's just not of importance to them. That doesn't mean that we're important. So I'm glad that the professor did look at our courts. What, What I'd like people to have a takeaway from this episode though, that our courts are where most people go to court and we are truly the agents where diversion programs are occurring, alternative punishments. Usually when a person goes to a criminal court, the first court at least they go to is a municipal court or a justice court or whatever you want, a town court. Usually they go there and the whole burden we have is to really try to make sure they don't end up in court again and also don't ruin their future. And we won't get headlines for that because there's not a headline or sometimes you don't even know except that they don't have a criminal record if someone doesn't end up in court again. 
but uh, we know that we do a lot of good in our local communities and there's a huge need that do what we're doing in our various courts. Betty? I'd like for individuals tuning in to this episode and those authors of the articles to understand you need to step outside of your comfort zone and see the courts, see us as we are. As president of Alabama Municipal Court Clerks and Magistrates Association, I have had the opportunity of every offering that we've mentioned during this podcast, it's been offered to for each of them, each of those courts. That association initially started through a voluntary program that the court personnel, they just wanted to know and learn more. They wanted to understand the magnitude of what their job held. They wanted to know how to do it better and how to do it the correct way. In doing so, that certification program is started out voluntary, became mandatory, not statutory, and it's a partnership with the Administrative Office of Courts where guidelines are prescribed through the Administrative Director of Courts. We fully participate in all trainings. We also work with the bar associations. We work with the local bar associations. We work with national associations such as National Center for State Courts. We work for the, with the Center for Court Innovation and a lot of our other partners such as the Southern Poverty Law Center. We have partnered with everyone who's willing to say, hey, listen, there's something we could do better. Let's not just talk about the system, let's improve the system. How do we do that? How do we make it change? And we have to be inside the organization to change it, to want it, and to do better. For everybody that encounters the criminal justice system, we're here to serve. That is our only role, we serve. Judge Logan? I would want folks to not paint such a broad brush about what we do. Uh, I know that one of the authors said she found it difficult to even find out information and then still print it. The state of Washington has been doing what we've been doing for years. We have an administrative office of the court that collects data that each of our courts collect data because we know that if you don't have that information available, it's very difficult to prove that they're making any change at all. The learned folks that I have crossed paths with that are in the municipal courts deserve another opportunity, another look, because we are doing many, many good things as well. And to paint us all under the same platform of kangaroo court or uh, that they should be eliminated really doesn't reflect a deep understanding of the importance of courts that address the urban needs, such as, for example, the city of Spokane's municipal court, or many of the other multitudes of municipal courts whose sole desire is indeed to serve the population in the very best way they can, which means individualized justice, looking at a human being that walks through their doors and seeing what can we do better and not just take money out of their pockets and not drive them uh, to jail or further issues with surrounding homelessness, but to help them become a more healthful citizen. That's what courts are about. It isn't just about retribution. It is about public safety, but public safety comes from that soulful reflection on what can be done better. And not all courts are the same. To presume otherwise is really not fair. And as I say, deserves a, we deserve a second look. My thanks to Courtney Whiteside, Betty King, 
Rashida Davis, Judge Ed Spillane, and Judge Mary Logan for their perspectives on local courts, their challenges, and their opportunities. As I said at the beginning of this episode, local courts deserve more attention by the court community. My hope is that episodes like this will start an ongoing conversation. My thanks, finally, to you court professionals joining us on today's episode. Whether you work for a limited jurisdiction or a general jurisdiction court, you are the face of America's courts, and we appreciate all you do. Catch us in August for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.